0: Please be seated if you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And I want to look out there and just say Merry Christmas to everyone. I hope you all are excited to be with your family. And I know uh, a lot of people are excited about Christmas. It's also one of the toughest times for some families, and we we do understand that. But I I want to tell you also that the difficulties that some people have around Christmas, and I was one of those when I was growing up is directly proportional or inversely proportional to the degree of how God wants us to be in our relationships. And so when we have pains and, and when our hearts are broken uh, because of broken relationships, and when we struggle with that during the holidays, it's normally because God had designed the family to be together and relationships to be uh, put together. And, and so any deviation from that, is a violation of what God had designed, and so we struggle with that. And so, in a way, even though it is painful, we can look to God and thank Him for His design in the family, and, and God is, is good and gracious. Uh, chapter 2, when, uh, I was, when, when, the, when Kim and I would have our kids, uh, our grandkids, especially Seth and Micah, uh, over to the house, one of the things that we love to do is, well, that they love to do also uh, I know we read a lot to them, and but one of the things that they would do is when they got ready for bed and i don 't know why, but our bedroom has become their favorite uh, place where they would stay at night, spend the night, and sleep We have this win- we have this window box seat and and uh, they take they would take turns sleeping on that, and they'd get comfortable with that and and then on that skim side of the bed is is facing that, and then there 's this Overstuffed chair that belongs to Kim. It doesn't have my name on it. That's her chair, and it's got a large ottoman also. And uh, she likes to read, and so she would read there in in, in our bedroom, and and that's her place. That's kind of like her cubicle, but it's her safe place. And but when we put the ottoman there, it is long enough where one of the kids, one of the grandkids, can also use that for a bed. And so they love to to do that. And so they get ready, and you know they brush their teeth, and then they lie down and and their eyes would just be getting big, and they'd say, "Pun, would you tell us the stories about Dad or Uncle Bashi, about Josh? And I mean, these are stories that they've heard for a long time. Over and over, I tell the same stories. And there's something precious about those stories, because they have become part of their life, and they... Even though they could not imagine, they, they, they did not see what happened when their dad was little or when Uncle Bashi ate those roly poly bugs and he was a, just barely crawling in our house in, in Borger, they could imagine that, and to them, it's become part of who they are as part of the Mariano family. And I say that to say this one of the neatest things that we have as followers of Christ, as Christians, are the stories about Christ that is repeated, hopefully repeated, every single time in our churches, every single season, that what we have recorded, for instance, in the Gospels about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, this should be precious stories to us that we read and we want to hear it again, over and over again. And when we come to the Easter time uh, this this year, this next year, it'll be in late, late March, that we also look forward to the same story about the, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, and His glorious resurrection, and then His promise of His return. Those are imp- uh, stories that should be important to us. I was talking to a, a friend one time, he's a pastor, and I and, uh, was just asking him, I said, uh, uh, we were talking about Christmas messages, and he said, well, I'm trying to find something relevant to, to tell the church about Christmas. I said, The most relevant thing we have is the Word of God. It's the story about the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot unpack all of it at one time. There's never a time, I don't care if you live to be 150 years old, there'll never be a time when you'll be able to unpack everything there is to unpack from the Word of God about who Christ is, His life story, His birth, and His his sacrifice. So I I tell our, our guys that. I tell the guys in our church who preach, who teach, So don't try to improve anything on the Word of God. This is the most important thing that we have. You cannot improve on the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, having said that, let us read what God has preserved for us through the centuries, through thousands of years, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child as soon as you find him. Report to me so that I may go and worship him. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill the boys, all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth that we can never fully understand: that God the Son, in all his glory and eternity, in his infinity took on the likeness of man, the very nature of man, and became like one of us. Born to a young lady, a young virgin, born in an obscure town, born without a lot of fanfare. And fathered that out of his life and because of him, that we today, Father, can have a relationship with you and call you the only true God, our Father. And Lord, may that never be lost on us. May it always be fresh in our hearts that every single day for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, Father, will be precious as you unpack your love and your grace for us every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last year, uh, our son Josh was still in... Uh, training with the Border Patrol at Fletsy, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in uh, Articia, New Mexico. And he was going to come home for, for Christmas, except a, win, uh, a winter storm came, and he couldn't get out of New Mexico. And, uh, but it was a great thing because Micah and Cammy and their family were spending Christmas with Cammy's parents, Cammy's family there. And so Josh got to spend time with him. Well, Micah, we had with Micah and Cammy, we had already exchanged presents with him. And I don't know when you all exchange presents. We normally do it early in the morning on sun, on not Sunday morning, but on Christmas morning, and that's always something fun for us. And and we did that actually before they, they left. And so we had Christmas with Micah and Cammy and the boys before they left. And uh, but Josh got stuck in uh, in Artesia, New Mexico. That's how I think of it when you. Have to spend Christmas in New Mexico, you get stuck there. Micah told me one time said, because I mean Kim is from Clovis, New Mexico, and Cam is from Artesia, New Mexico. Uh, Rachel's husband is from um, Carlsbad, New Mexico, and Micah looked at me and said, Dad, we did it right. Uh, we brought our wives from New Mexico as fast as we could to Texas, and Rachel did it wrong because they're living in. New Mexico, in Portales, New Mexico. I said, "Yeah, I guess, I guess so." Um, what was I talking about? See, I forget <laughs> this thing. I always need to carry a pistol so I can shoot those rabbits. Keep, <laughs> keep trying to follow those rabbit trails. Go on those rabbit trails. But anyway, we Josh wasn't home. Mike and the kids were not home. Uh, I don't even remember if Rachel was, Rachel was home. Anyway, we were opening presents, and we thought, okay, we will open Joshua's presents, and we Skyped him. That's a wonderful technological uh, advancement that we have. You can Skype, you can see each other and talk. Well, we were opening his presents. And you know how it is, you know, when there's tons of just debris in, in, on the floor and, and all of that. Well, several family members had given our kids Uh, We we all had contributed to this, but some of our family members had given them some cash, and they normally get some cash for Christmas. Well, it was quite a bit of cash. But you know, normally when you get cash like that, it's not like in a big, nice box. Normally it's in a very nondescript container, like an envelope. And guess what happened? You guessed it. We couldn't find the thing after it had been opened. There's quite a bit of money in there. At least for me, there was a lot of <laughs> money in there. And, and we just thought, I, and, and there have been prayers that were offered. You know, we said, uh, one of my prayers during the year was, this, this year was, Lord, if, if that money was lost, let someone who actually needed that, and, and Kim and I talked about this, let someone who needed that uh, uh, find, the, find the thing. And uh, it was really the latter part of summer when... Kim and I thought, we just wondered if we had stuck it in one of those boxes where we keep our uh, decorations. And sure enough, I pulled down those boxes. I opened one of those boxes. Guess what I found? It was the envelope. And you know why it was lost? Because it was nondescript, small. It was not shiny. It's easy to lose. And the way the Lord Jesus Christ was birth. was so easy for people, even today, as it was then, people missed it. People missed him because he was born in an undescript town called Bethlehem. He was born to an obscure set of parents, His, the virgin mom, who was a young teenager, and nobody even knew who he was. And that's how the Son of God came into this world the challenge for us today is that in the business of the season and the hustle and bustle and the frenzy of everything that we're doing trying to get things done and going to the finish last minute shopping and all of that that we don't miss especially for our, for those of us who are believers that we don't miss him that this is about his birthday that this is about the birth this is the incredible incarnation of the infinite God, the powerful, majestic, eternal, preexistent God who invaded time and history to a point in time, clothed himself in our humanity and became man and was born to a virgin in a little town of Bethlehem. Well, not only that, one of the things too that I know permeates our culture is this idea of things are, especially here, You know, I, I mean, I hear this a lot you know, that's the cutest baby I have ever seen. We, we like to deal in superlatives, don't we? And we like to define things in how big they are, how shiny they are, or how magnificent they are. What's the best thing you've seen this year? Best movie, best thing that... Everything is best. When uh, any experience that we have in life, what is the best, what is the pinnacle of everything you've, you've ever done? And when you compare these two cities here, in verse, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of Herod, it says from... Uh, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Well, there are these two cities. One was Bethlehem, and the other one was Jerusalem. If you're talking, to be, if you're talking about a, a, the, the seat of power and the seat of prominence in, in the life of the nation, in the life of, of really that region, you're talking about Jerusalem. You're talking about this is where the temple was, this is where the priests, this is where people made their pilgrimages to. And even though Bethlehem had a colorful and very biblical, biblically significant background, yet it was still a small town, just about five to six miles just south of Jerusalem. It's kind of like saying something significant happens in Mertzen. Well, sorry, Bill and uh, the Millers. I know I was in Mertzen. I was telling you I was in Mertzen last week. I mean, I'm just saying it's, it's kind of like, okay, in the United States... If you want something to happen, if you want something big that's going on, you go to Washington, D.C. because that's, that's where the seat of power is. But here we find, it says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Well, what was Bethlehem in biblical times? Bethlehem was, used to be called Epratha, or short, Epra, uh, before the Israelites conquered it under Joshua. And then they renamed the town Bethlehem. And the word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, and significantly, of course, this is, this is called the house of bread because this was a fertile land where they raised grain and crops and, and, and this is where they produced wheat. Uh, this, this was where Jacob's beloved Rachel was buried, according to Genesis chapter 35. And this, is also, this was also the scene of, of a wonderful, wonderful love story uh, between Ruth and Boaz. You remember Ruth, and last week I could not remember her mother-in-law's name. It was Naomi and when they had, been, they had been in Moab, she was a Moabit, Moabitess, and they had moved back after their husbands, all their husbands died. Well, Orpah stayed back in Moab, and went, they went to Jerusalem, to the eastern part of where they used to live, because there was, there was food there. And while they were there, that Ruth met this older relative of uh, uh, Naomi's husband, whose name was Boaz. And of course, Boaz and Ruth were the grandparents of a very prominent, the greatest king that Israel ever had, which was King David. And so this was a place that was well known to them. And in fact, it became known as the city of David. And yet, when you look at it, it was not something that was to be gloried on. However, the prophet Micah in chapter 5 it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That's a language that says from eternity. God himself was called the ancient of days. And so it's talking about the divine nature of this ruler. That was going to come out of Bethlehem. And when you compare this nondescript town called Bethlehem and this powerful city called Jerusalem, oftentimes you'll say, "Well, that's where what's, what's happening is is in Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem. And yet God had chosen Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that I think we, we need to always. Be reminded of, especially in our culture today. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, said this, talking about the gospel and how foolish the gospel is to those who think that they are smart and wise. He said in chapter 1, just listen to this, beginning in verse 26, he said, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And then he said this, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us talking about Jesus Christ has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. We are not saved because we are smart. We are not saved because we are popular. No, we are not saved by a religion that, that, that glories in the things of this world, but we, glo- we, we are saved by the foolishness of God, exemplified through what He did through His Son, Jesus Christ. Today, as I looked around and, and, and I was telling... Uh, Kim and some people in our family, one, uh, I, I don't know what it is, but there seems to be a, people get enamored with, with a religion that, that, that imposes on you certain things that you can do to earn salvation. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've been convinced that in each one of our hearts, except for the grace and the mercy and the power of God that he did through, his, through the saving process of through the saving grace of Christ that each one in each, in each of our hearts is embedded the seed of Babylon That you remember the story of Babylon in, in, in Genesis chapter 11 where it says that, that, that Nimrod uh, one of the sons of Ham established a city and they said they built, says let us build this tower that reaches up to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves and I think deep inside of us, we have that desire to, to do certain things so that we can say, ha, I have received these things from God because I, had, I deserve it. You know, I, I joke about, uh, people have asked me, says, what do, I, what do we have to do to join this church? And I'll say, well, you start in the back of the church, get down on your knees, and you walk down to the front on your knees and back and do it several times. Of course, I'm just joking, but that's how I grew up. I grew up that way, in a religion that, that imposes those demands on you, things that you can do. But somehow, people, even evangelicals, so-called evangelicals, they would say, you know, I, I know they're not Christians, but they seem to do a better job of taking care of their lives. They seem to do a better job of, of taking care of their families. And they get enamored with that stuff. I don't know how many times I've heard, for instance, the word karma from believers. I don't know if you know what karma is. It's a Hindu term. It's a Hindu term that has to do with reincarnation. That you come back on the basis of karma, which is what you deserve to come back as. If if we're going to come back on the basis of how we've lived our lives, this this earth, this world will be full of worms, wouldn't it? Come on. Y'all are sitting there going, you're talking about you, yourself. But think about it. Because we we think that somehow, deep inside of us, there's something that deserves salvation that we have received from the Lord. And like I said last week, Pelagianism, Pelagius was a bishop monk who taught that children are born without sin and that they participate in the sin of Adam when they begin to sin. And the church branded that as a heresy and kicked him out as a heretic And yet, over the years, well, the Roman Catholic Church adopted part of that in terms of uh, uh, what they called semi-Pelagianism, that you will participate in the grace of God by the things that you do. I mean, I grew up that way. But here's the thing, though. Baptists will say they don't believe that, and yet, because they believe that they can be moral, and by their morality, they can earn salvation with God, and I've heard that from Baptists, still smacks of what we call semi-Pelagianism. When people have asked me before, said, say, how did you go from being Catholic to being Baptist? I said, I didn't. They said, in fact, what worries me are Baptists. What worries me are people in the Baptist church, like at College Hills Baptist Church, who may have trusted, they, they, they look back to a time in their life when they said, I trusted Jesus Christ. I was baptized at that church, and yet there is no proof in their life. There is no fruit of the Holy Spirit. There is no sign of, the, of God living in them. And then they, they say, but, but I'm, I, I said those prayers. Listen, there is no biblically, you, you cannot support biblically that, that kind of theology by saying that God himself can live in you and God himself will not produce some kind of spiritual fruit in your life. There's nothing in the scripture that says that. Yes, we respond by faith to what God has done when he awakens in our hearts about our sinfulness and about Christ. Yes, we respond by faith. And yes... It is a point in time when we do that, but a lot, some, of, some of the times, we don't even, we're not even aware when that happens. I remember when, when I first came to College Hills, and, and the, the church was interviewing me and Kim, and I met with the deacons at the time, of course the staff, and, and then the Sunday school teachers, and y'all had a, a dinner for us, and then somebody called the pastor, called Gordon. And he told me this. He said, that guy you're trying to bring in as an associate pastor, he's not even a Christian because he could not remember the exact date and time of when he became a Christian. I thought, wow. I said, where is that in the Bible? I mean, you can find it here. But the question that we must ask is, is there spiritual fruit in your life? Was there a time that you recognized that you were you're lost in your sins? And you recognize what God had done that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. That when Jesus hung on that cross, he was, not being, he was not simply put to death by the Jewish religious leaders and by the Roman soldiers. But it was your sin and my sin that put him there. I've said that same thing to some family members and I said, my sins, our sins killed Jesus. And I have a family member who told me, he says, don't say it like that because you'll scare people. I'd say, I'll say it like that because it's the truth in the Bible. My sin put my Lord, put the Lord and the creator of this universe, the second person of the Trinity, of the Holy Trinity on that cross. It's my sin. All the things I've ever done in my life and all the things I will ever do if I live to be a hundred years old. Well, let's look at what happens here. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. It says, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, it's interesting because you also have not only the, 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 the contrast between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but there's also this contrast between the Magi and Herod and the religious leaders at the time, the chief priests the reason it's called chief priests, their chief of the chief priests was, of course, the, the high priest. But they were in charge of several things in, in the temple. And the scribes or the Pharisees. Well, the Magi first appeared in history in 7th century B.C. They were from eastern Mesopotamia, probably from the same area where, where Abraham had come from, in, around Ur in, in the Chaldeans. They were considered priests and wise men among the eastern peoples. The Magi were skilled in astronomy and astrology. And at that time, astronomy and astrology were kind of like one and the same. There was an overlapping of what they were. Today, of course, they're very different. Astronomy is a science. Astrology is just uh, people trying to make money off of the stars. And they had a sacrificial system very similar to what God prescribed to Moses for the Israelites, for his people. They also engaged in sorcery and were known for interpreting dreams. They were considered wise men. A dominant part of their worship was fire. In fact, they had this, in in, in the main altar that the the Magi had in Mesopotamia, they had this, what they called the eternal fire that they said, they believed, came directly from heaven. Magi were men known for their extensive knowledge of science, agriculture, agriculture, mathematics, history, and the occult. And that is why they were often referred to as wise men. They became the most influential group of men in their society that no one, actually they were kind of like power brokers, nobody ascended to a throne or a high position in their society except by their counsel and with their blessing. And in fact, let me just read to you this, just listen to this. You remember in, in Esther, in the book of Esther, when... Uh, when the king wanted King Xerxes wanted to, he threw this big banquet, and he wanted to show off his wife, Queen Vashti, and she didn't want to come. He, she said no to the king. You didn't do that to the king. And let me just read this to you in chapter one, beginning in verse 13. It says, "Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men. Who understood the times and were closest to the king, and then mentions their name. So, this, the the wise men or the magi were already there. They were, like I said, they were power brokers in those days. Not only that, they were also power brokers in the time of Daniel. In Daniel chapter chapter two, you remember when King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and no one, none of the wise men or the magi could interpret his dreams. His dream, and then in Dan, Daniel chapter two, verse forty-eight, after he had given after Daniel had given him the interpretation of his dream, it says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect or governor over all the wise men of Babylon. Again, it was mentioned as the wise men of Babylon as in, as in the case of in Persia in, in, the, in the time of Esther. And in fact, when the, the plot that landed Daniel in, 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 uh, in the lion's den was not done by the wise men. They were done by the governors, the political leaders. Because this man, the wise men of Babylon, probably owed their life to Daniel. And the text in Daniel does not say this, but we cannot help, I cannot help. But when you look at the text, look at what it says in verse 2. They asked, look, look at what the magi, the wise men asked. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. That's a very precise language that they use. Where in the world do you find in the Old Testament? And we looked at this three weeks ago. Numbers 24 verse 17 says this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And we said that in this text, in this text, what you see is a star, the two advents of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, two, the, the, the first and the second coming. In the first part of verse 17, where he says, A star shall come out of Jacob. It was a star that shone on the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Shekinah glory of God, I personally, I believe, that shone on, on who, where Christ was, that, that there was his glory that was manifested to the people who he wanted to be manifested to. And of course, in the second part of that, when it says, And a scepter, meaning royalty or kingship, it's not talking about the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's talking about the second advent. But for prophets, when they're looking at two events like this, first event, first coming of Christ, second coming of Christ, but they're looking at it from this perspective and they look like they're part of the same deal. And so that's how they prophesied. Most of the prophets would prophesy in that way. But, and, and he says, and this is what, one thing they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? He said, we saw his star. And so, where did that come from? What well, came right there from Numbers 24, verse 17? How did they know about Numbers 24, verse 17? Guess what? God had allowed some of his people to be deported and exiled into Babylon. And guess what? Did, what did these men do? Like Daniel and, and, and Hananiah and, Sh- and Azariah and Mishael. What did they do? They proclaimed who the true God was. So, this Magi knew the prophecy. And interpreted the times according to God's word. Look at chapter 1 of Matthew. Look at verse 22. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. It was a fulfillment of what God had said through the prophet. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Look at verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Look at verse 23. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. What are these things saying to us? It's saying to us this. That these people who were probably not even Yahweh worshippers, the magi, wise men, power brokers in the east. They understood what probably Daniel and his companions had shared with them. And they trusted Yahweh and they trusted His Word. And so when they saw the signs of like the star from the east, it said they followed it and they knew that the fulfillment was, was, had already happened. And they lived their lives based on what God had said in His Word. And so they followed the star and they've come to worship Him. You know, when I, when I think about that, I think about how Often, like this past week, the world was supposed to have ended December 21st. When was that? Thursday? I guess you all missed it. Uh, I was trying to sell some electric blankets for the end of the world, but nobody would buy it. Uh, that, that's a joke, for those of you who do not know me. That, that was just a joke. I, it's bad when you have to define a joke as a joke before people would start laughing. Um, But you know, the challenge for us is we, we, we have the Word of God, don't we? Like the Magi did. And they lived on the basis of what they knew that God has already said in His Word. And you know what the difficulty of the church and the difficulty in the Christian life is? And the difficulty even for people who do not know Christ and as we share Christ with them. And sometimes it's so confusing for them because what we share with them is not what, what is in accordance with the Word of God. And a lot of times, we don't even know what this is. And that is why in our church, we just always try to encourage you, spend time in the Word. You cannot, you cannot live your life. You cannot have a healthy appreciation of what the world, what your world looks like unless you build it on on God's Word. When Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, when they were offered uh, the king's provision, it says, Daniel had already decided that he was not going to defile himself. When the tough times came, he already knew where he to stand. And the only way Daniel could do that is because he already knew the word of God. If you're playing football, you cannot go out there and not having gone to training camp and have, not having studied the place. And you look at your coaches. I was, telling, I was telling Rex this the other day. It drives me crazy when I see teams. And he was explaining this. I'm not a football coach. So I just, what do I know? You know, I don't even understand why you call football when you, you don't use your feet, you use your hands. But anyway, that's for another story. Soccer is football because you use your feet. Right? Let's see. Anyway, I would watch our teams. I think Central does this and other teams. On, on, they would line up, and then they would all turn to the coach. Like, give us the play. And I, I thought, if you don't know the play, why even play the game? And that's the same for a lot of Christians. We, we have to understand who God is, his character. We will not know every way that we should respond and how we will respond to every situation, but we will have a confidence in who our God is if we know him through his word. But if your understanding of God is simply based on, on culture or your experiences, I've heard this from people. In fact, there's a Christian, uh, Christianity Today article about all these books that people have gone to heaven. Listen, heaven is real, not because people experience heaven. Heaven is real because the Bible says so. And somebody might say, well, I died and went to heaven. And that's fine, and I cannot argue with what it is they experience. But the reality of our faith is tested, it's founded on what God has already said. Whether you feel it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether your circumstances agree with it or not. This is the truth. This is what defines truth and reality for us. Well, so you've got the Magi who understood the scriptures, understood the times, saw the star, and they followed it. It's a long journey. By the way, the text does not say how many there were of them. And did you know that some of the songs that we have in our culture, we call them also kings? And the reason for that is they were probably, they were king makers. uh, But they were also probably attired, and they, were, they held high positions in, in government. In Jeremiah chapter 39, when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege against Jerusalem, one of the ones who was with him was, uh, this is kind of interesting, I can't pronounce his name, but his title was Bab Mag. Bab, B-A-B-M-A-G. That's a good name to give your boy, if you have a boy. But it means chief magi or chief magician. That's where we get the word, by the way, magic or magician is from that term. Well, so you've got them, these guys who were into all these weird things, but they heard the truth of God, they responded to that, they followed Jesus, and we saw in the text that they even worshipped him and brought gifts to him. Well, what's the other side of the story here? Well, you've got Herod. Herod was one of these neat, neat guys who was a Machiavellian before Machiavelli was even born. Machiavelli was a political writer in, in, uh, in Italy during the, the Renaissance, early Renaissance period who wrote the book called The Prince. And basically he said in his book, you become whatever you need to be to, so that you can retain power. It doesn't matter what happens. In fact, the, the, the statement that a lot of people, we still use today, the end justifies the means, is from his book, The Prince. Well, that was a... That was Herod, Herod the Great, according to history, was the son of Antipater, who was the son of uh, he was the grandson of Antipas, and because of his father's influence, that he was uh, uh, he was granted the uh, governorship at the time of Galilee, and uh, he was famous for quelling the still the Jewish rebellion against Rome. Uh, he was an Edomite uh, from Edom, so he was not a Jew. And when the Parthians came and invaded Palestine, he escaped to Egypt and then went to Rome. And he became friends with Octavian, who, more more popularly, we know him as Caesar Augustus, and also with Antony. And it was those two guys, after many years there, that they and with the concurrence of the of the Roman Senate, they named him as the King of the Jews. And so he goes back with an army to to uh, Palestine and wages a war against the Parthians for several years until he drives them out. And he establishes himself as the king of the Jews, and because he knew he was not a Jew, he married a, the, the, the heiress to the Hasmonean Jewish royalty named Mariamne, and whose uh, brother, uh, Aristobulus, was also the high priest at the time. And so basically establishing his position in, 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 in that place. Well, he was, like I said, he was very Machiavellian. There was a great famine at the time, and, and get this, we're talking about fiscal cliff in our country today. Guess what he did? When times got so tough, he returned their taxes to them, a lot of their taxes. Not only that, he gathered the gold in the palace and then melted them and gave them as, as distributed them among the people so they can buy food, and so people go, whoa, this is great. He was also an orator, not only was he, he was a warrior, of course, and uh, he was a great orator, but he was also a builder. He was the one responsible for the rebuilding of, of the second temple. Actually, the second temple, we call it, after he started rebuilding it uh, in, in his reign, we call it Herod's Temple. He enlarged especially the area where the, where the Gentiles were, the courtyard of, of the temple, and made it more beautiful. Uh, and, and so he was this builder, but he also not only did that in that part of, of the country, but he also built. Uh, he helped build roads, and he built the port city of Caesarea, whom, uh, which he named after his benefactor, uh, Octavian, who was no, known as Caesar Augustus. But the man was also ruthless. He was very ruthless. In fact, the guy was so ruthless that he had his wife killed because he wanted to preserve his position. And he knew he was a pretender to the throne. And so he had Mariamne killed, and then also the high priest, her brother, Aristobulus, killed. And later on, five years before he died, we also had uh, Mariamne's and Aristobulus' mother killed. He didn't want anybody from that lineage to be threatening his position as king over the Jews. And then five years before he died, he had his own son, his third son killed. He actually had two of his sons killed with with their mother. And then he knew that no one was going to mourn him. And so before he died, he had all of the prominent citizens of Jerusalem arrested in prison. And he gave orders that the day that he died, he wanted all of them put to death so that then the city would be in mourning. How would you like to be mourned by people because they're not mourning for you, but they're mourning for other people? I mean, this guy was ruthless. Of course, we know his ruthlessness in verse 17. Well, in verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years and older. Two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is one of the texts I thought about a week ago, a little over a week and a half ago, a week ago, when that thing happened in Connecticut. The mourning and the weeping. But this one was caused by the king himself. He had those boys killed. The Magi saw, who were, these guys were astrologers, they did all kinds of weird things, but when they were confronted with the word of God, they responded to Yahweh. They became Yahwists, and they followed it, they were excited, they wanted to worship him, traveled all that distance to worship this newborn king. Herod refused to be dethroned from his throne, from his kingship. You know, when you think about it, I've known people over the years who will not respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because they don't want to relinquish the throne of their lives over to Jesus Christ. They still want to do the things they want to do. They want to be king. They want to be lord of their lives. A lot of times, there are a lot of people that we know of who are just like Herod, even today. You can, they, can, they can say, you can have your religion, you can have your Christianity, but they will quote you Invictus I am the master of my soul. Because they won't relinquish it. I tell you what's scary. is the third group. Also with Herod. Look at verse 2. Verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem and Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then he quotes Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Now these guys, the religious leaders, knew the scriptures. They were experts in the law. They were the ones who were mediators between the people of God and God himself. They understood the word of God, but they were oblivious to Jesus Christ. A lot of over the years I've known a lot of people who can quote you the scriptures, but they have not they don't have a relationship with the living God. See, it cannot be, and this is something I tell parents when you're talking to your kids or when you're sharing the, the gospel with someone. Especially our kids who grow up in Awana in Sunday school and in church, they understand all this information. If all they have is information, if they can quote you the gospel, if they can tell you the gospel that, yes, God is a wonderful God. He is a, the creator God. He is the one who is in charge of everything and by his power and his in his will that he created everything, he created man in his image, and then man fell and sinned, and they, if they can explain that to you, and says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it means all of us, that there is no one who is righteous, and they explain all of that to you, and that it's only through Christ that you can have salvation, and there have been times, I will ask kids as I explain the gospel to them, I said, do you understand what, that man is sinful? And they say, yes sir, have you ever sinned in your life? No sir, That tells me they have not understood it. They have a mental, intellectual understanding of what the Word of God says. But they don't understand sinfulness. They have not personalized it. And you have to personalize it. Not only the sinfulness that we are broken down because of our sins and and we are messed up and the only thing we've ever deserved, the only thing I have ever deserved, and I've confessed this to you many times over, I know Lacan, I know what the Word of God says, and I know the only thing I've ever deserved in this life is help. I don't deserve anything else. When we understand that, and we understand the wonderful, gracious, merciful gift of God through his son, Jesus Christ, then that's when we cry out to him in humility, and we say, Lord, I've sinned against you. It is not something that you just say, you say a prayer and it means something. No, it's, it's a brokenness of heart and a brokenness of spirit that recognizes our sinfulness and who God is and his provision through his son. And we say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for violating your person and your character and I deserve hell, but you're offering me sonship. So you can have all of these things like the religious leaders did and not know Christ. This is really where I was when I was growing up in the Philippines. I was very religious, went to church, did all kinds of things. And I thought by my good deeds, I can earn salvation with God. And it was not until I lived with Wallace and Doreen Bruce and their family in Pampa, Texas, that for the first time I saw Christ alive in people's lives. And then I was confronted with the holiness of God, and I was confronted with my own sinfulness. See, all those times I was growing up, all those years I was growing up, I was trying to earn my salvation. And man, you cannot do it. You and I cannot do it. It's kind of like you and I, not just skin deep, but heart deep. We are full of sin, and everything we touch, even the most righteous things that we try to do, are tainted by our sinfulness. You and I can't do it. And we only buy, we rely on the grace and the mercy of God. And we just say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you except my heart that is so black and it's so dark and it's so wicked and it's so evil. And I just offer my heart to you and I ask for your forgiveness. Listen, you may be here this morning. I don't know. One thing that scares me is religion without Christ. You know where you do all the motions like these guys did? They knew all, the, they knew all their memory verses. These guys went to Awana. And they knew all of that stuff. But they missed Christ. Don't miss Christ. You can have a great Christmas season. Get all the gifts you want. And if you miss Christ, you miss the best gift. The only gift that ever matters. But don't do it. If you've been playing religious, this religious game, quit it. And just understand who you are. Understand that it's all God. And he simply awakens in your heart an understanding of who you are. And you, like a beggar, just as God offers his free gift, just, you just say, thank you, Lord. You just say, thank you. And receive him that way. Let us pray. Father, what a magnificent story with a great love great mercy and grace and I pray Father that your heartbeat would be the one that would permeate our lives and each person's life here in our families even as we gather for Christmas and that we will understand Father who you are and your precious, precious gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, if there's one or two here this morning who do not know you, I pray, Father, that they will respond by faith as you've made yourself known to them through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that, Lord, that they will understand that they can't offer you anything, shouldn't offer you anything, but simply receive the free gift of eternal life that you're given through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Would you stand? Would you sing this song to our God? And if someone uh, wants to talk to uh, Fred or me or Rex, we'll be here. Fred and Rex will be here in the front. Uh, You can visit with them during this time or even after the service. Same thing with me. Uh, Respond to him. Would you let the Holy Spirit be the one that tells you what to do and be obedient to him?